You're listening to audio from Mountain View Church, located in Murphy, North Carolina. If you'd like more information, you can find us at www.mtnvu.org or on Instagram and Facebook at Mountain View Church NC. My name's Mike. I'm one of the pastors here at Mountain View. And uh, if this is your very first time with us, uh, we're especially grateful that you are here today. Thanks for choosing to worship with us. Just want to reiterate something that uh, the lovely Brubaker girls said in the announcements. Please remember the fall festival this coming Saturday from 2 to 6 p.m. We've still got several of these invitation cards out in the Connection Center. Grab a handful, pass them out this week. This is always one of our favorite events each and every year, and it's a great opportunity uh, to introduce folks to our church and to your church family. I also want to encourage you as well, uh, if you're not in a small group, consider joining one. I'm trying to say that every Sunday during the month of October, there's a board out there with little cards like this on it. Uh, Those cards represent information about all 10 of our groups. And I just want you to know that in early November, we're going to be launching three more You'll be hearing more about those in coming weeks, and I am a huge proponent of community in the church, and if you're going to grow, that's most often where it happens. So if you're not in a group, find a group to get in, or simply ask us, and we'll be glad to help you find the right group for you. All right, we are in Exodus chapter 20, looking at verse 14. This morning, we've been in the book of Exodus for several months now, and weeks ago, I decided that we needed to slow down and spend some significant time simply walking through the Ten Commandments one by one. And if there was one in particular that I was looking down the road toward, trying to figure out exactly what I wanted to say about it, it was this one. Commandment number seven. If you've got your Bibles, I do invite you to look at verse 14 of Exodus 20. If you don't have a Bible, you'll find one underneath one of the seats in front of you. I invite you to follow along as I read this very brief verse. God says to his people, you shall not commit adultery. Father, last week we looked at the sixth commandment, a short and sweet one, no murder. In the original language, this one's no different, no adultery. But man, oh man, there's so much underneath the surface that we need to explore this morning. So many implications to this commandment. God, I pray that you would give us all hearts to receive what you would say to us and ears to hear what you would say to us. Holy Spirit, we ask you to teach us now. In the name of Jesus, our beloved King. Amen. Now, I've said it many times during our journey through the book of Exodus, and it bears repeating Yahweh didn't only rescue the people of Israel from something. 
He rescued them for something. He intended their lives and their life together under his leadership to show the world around them a different way of life. To give the nations that surrounded them a vision of what life with God should look like. To provoke among those same nations a desire to know Yahweh. The ten words show us the shape that that life was intended to take. A way of life, in fact, defined exclusively and completely by Yahweh. Yahweh expected Israel to be completely devoted to him. And he expected their devotion to him to be lived out in every nook, cranny, corner, and dark place of their lives. No home in their, or rather I should say, no room in their homes was to be off limits to him. Even their bedrooms. If Yahweh would be king and Israel would be his people, he would have a key to every room in their homes and every desire in their hearts. Wait, you say. God wants a key to what? You shall not commit adultery. He tells his beloved people in the seventh word. Again, short and blunt in the original. No adultery. Now what does this signify? Simply this. All sexual activity outside the exclusive, lifelong, committed union between a biological man and a biological woman is prohibited. Now some of the words that I just used, I used very intentionally. Now this does not mean that God is anti-sex. This is something that the church has failed to teach for far too long. God created human beings, male and female, for the purpose of interdependent union. A union that is spiritual, relational, emotional, and physical. God simply requires that his people channel their sexuality into a single, narrow path. Why? Because sex is a powerful and potent thing. Because sex is a powerful and potent thing, in the right context, like a fire in a fireplace, Sex can produce great good. In the wrong context, 
like a forest fire. Sex can produce great harm. You and I also need to remember, as we talked about last week, as we consider this particular commandment, that not only is God not anti-sex, the heart of the ten words is a matter of the heart. Yeah, the seventh word prohibits any sexual activity outside the marital union of a man and a woman. But as the Lord Jesus teaches us, the spirit of the law forbids setting your eyes on another person for the purpose of satisfying your craving for sexual satisfaction through that person. Similar to what we read from the Sermon on the Mount last week. In fact, not too far after those verses, in Matthew 5, 27 through 30, we hear these words from Jesus. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. To lust after someone is to completely disregard their humanity, their dignity, their worth, their personhood, their story. And to simply want what they can offer you for the sole purpose of satisfying your craving for sexual pleasure. The Lord Jesus is saying to his hearers and he's saying to us that you and I are not to treat others this way if we are citizens in his kingdom. So if the sixth commandment prohibits treating others as if they were simply expendable, the seventh commandment prohibits treating others as if they were simply consumable. By the way, this is what viewing porn amounts to. Consumption without connection. Which is why porn is so very lethal. It trains the heart to use others rather than to love and serve them. To simply consume bodies rather than knowing people. Jesus wants us to recognize that a human being has such worth in the eyes of God that that person is not to be violated or taken advantage of even in the privacy of our own mind. Those who belong to Yahweh 
are not to be people driven by our baser, animalistic-like cravings. Cravings which devour others for our own pleasure and benefit. Instead, you and I are to be people driven by self-sacrificial, cross-shaped love for others. Giving ourselves to them rather than taking from them. In a God-honoring marriage, a husband and a wife give themselves first to their gracious king and then outwardly to one another in spiritual, relational, emotional, intellectual, and physical union. In that context, sex is intended to be something that the husband offers to the wife and the wife offers to the husband. Something that is then shared as a mutual means of self-giving love, of mutual pleasure and mutual joy. This is why Paul says what he does in 1 Corinthians 7 verses 3 and 4. The husband should give his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. Notice that Paul does not say the husband should demand from his wife his conjugal rights or the wife should demand from her husband her conjugal rights. No, the emphasis here, because Paul is looking at sex through the lens of the gospel, is not on taking but what? Giving. Giving. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. The vows of marriage and the commitment of husband and wife to remain faithful to the vows that they made on their wedding day and the commitment that they've made to remain faithful to one another for a lifetime. Those promises connected and upheld and encouraged within the context of a community of faith who both protect and honor marriage, generally speaking, but help us all specifically to uphold and honor our own marriages. That covenant commitment, it's intended to train us. It's intended to teach us how to become a people who look like Jesus. A people of self-sacrificial love who actually deny ourselves in order to keep our promises. God does want to keep every room in our homes and every room in our hearts, including those most intimate places that we would rather keep to ourselves, which 
brings up the first question I want to ask and answer this morning. What right does God have to have to tell me who I can and cannot sleep with? Now, if there is one commandment among the ten that tests us, it is this one. The cultural air that we breathe every day carries within it this built-in assumption, almost like an airborne contagion, that there is quite possibly no greater sin than the sin of prohibiting the free expression of an individual's sexual identity, preferences, or desire. This is often why the Bible's instructions, including the seventh commandment, sound so backward and, to be perfectly frank, increasingly dangerous to many people. But I want to be clear. Everyone places boundaries around sex. When it comes down to it, the real questions are simply these. Where should the boundaries be placed and who gets to place them? Currently, our culture has two essential sexual boundaries. Consent and age. In light of these two restrictions, we can say that Virtually everyone agrees that there is such a thing as improper sexual behavior. In other words, almost no one believes in complete and total sexual freedom. Now there are those outliers... And they are becoming increasingly less so in some quarters. But regardless of who you talk to, the majority of people will still place boundaries around this thing called sex. This, this means essentially that whether people admit it or not, sex matters to everyone. Deep down we know, all of us do, that sex is about more than body parts. We know that it's about more than physical release. We know that human beings are more than mere animals. We know the harm that has been and continues to be caused to people who have been sinned against sexually. Harm that often lasts long beyond the time and the place of the actual sexual sin. Harm that often goes far beyond bodies into hearts and minds and souls and relationships. We know, because research tells us this, that habitual porn uses actually causes Changes in the structures of the human brain. 
Changes in the way that you and I relate to one another. We know that much damage is done to families when one spouse cheats on another. We know that the demand for more and more and more and more porn fuels a dark and sinister sex trafficking industry that treats women and girls as commodities to be consumed and then thrown upon the trash heap once they have served <clears throat> excuse me, their purpose. Deep down, we know that sex matters. Otherwise, we would not put any fences around it. We're just not sure why it matters. And we're pretty sure that we don't want anyone else telling us why it matters or what to do with it. But isn't this precisely what happens when we jettison the idea of a creator? And we conclude that we're all just happy accidental collisions of time, chance, and matter. If there is no creator, humanity has no ultimate purpose. And if humanity has no ultimate purpose, then sex has no ultimate purpose. If there's any meaning to be made of it at all, we must make that meaning for ourselves. Which is precisely why so many people around us are trying so very desperately to do this very thing through the unrestricted expression of their sexuality. And look, you and I need to be very, very sure Many of us who name the name of Christ, we are caught up in this meaning-making culture as much as anyone. The statistics surrounding pornography usage among those who claim to be Christians and those who do not claim to be Christians are not that much different. And there are so many people in the body of Christ who want to be free but who do not know how to get free and who are wandering around in undisclosed shame. Because they are living out of lust and not from love. So many Christians are oblivious to the fact often with great heartache to the fact that we have a creator and a redeemer who invites us to embrace his instructions for our good and the good of others. Now look, ours is not the first culture to reject God's instructions regarding sexuality. In fact, you can study many ancient cultures and you will find that there is truly nothing new 
under the sun. When the Apostle Paul was writing to the Corinthian church, he was under no illusions regarding what life was like in that ancient cosmopolitan city. If you wanted to indulge your sexual cravings, Corinth was the place to go. In fact, it seems many in the church there were just fine with the idea and indulged themselves along with everyone else. This is how they reasoned. They took a very low view of the material world and a very high view of the spiritual realm. Which meant personally that they took a very low view of the body and a very high view of the spirit. This is essentially the kind of life philosophy that that led to. Well, the stomach is obviously created for food. And food is obviously created for the stomach. And God is going to destroy both of those things in the end, so why not indulge? A little further down the line, the reasoning went, well, the human body is clearly designed for sexual activity, and sexual activity seems to be designed for the human body, so again, why not indulge? After all, God's going to destroy both sex and the body in the end anyway. The material world is going to go away and all that's going to be left is the spiritual realm. But the apostle Paul would not have any of that thinking because it isn't Christian. Your soul matters to God and your body matters to God. Because as Paul says, ultimately God is going to redeem and restore both of them. Listen to what he tells the Corinthian church in chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians beginning in verse 13. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that the various parts of your body belong to and are united to the risen Christ? Shall I then take these parts of my body which belong to Jesus and make them members of a prostitute? What do you think the answer to that question is? Paul says, never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. Remember when I said sex is a powerful and potent thing? Right there. Something happens when two people connect their bodies to one another, regardless of whether or not they have a commitment to one another. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. 
Therefore, what? Flee, run away from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a what? A temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So, don't satisfy your sexual cravings. Instead, use the various parts of your body to what? Bring glory to God. Child of God, you have been bought. Body and soul. With the precious blood of King Jesus. You belong to him. He is your king. And he has given you his own spirit which even now dwells within you. You are a living temple. Which means that whatever you and I subject our bodies to, we subject the spirit living within us. Your king plans to redeem you body and soul. Therefore, start to live now like the eternal being that you are. Body and soul. Friends, going back to the third commandment, if you and I are going to bear the name of Christ faithfully, We must bear it faithfully in this area of our lives. How especially challenging this will be in our day and time. But how especially necessary it is in our day and time. Second and final question I want to ask and answer this morning is, Simply this, why is God so concerned with the sex lives of his people? Why does he insist on access to the most intimate parts of our lives? Can't he just leave well enough alone? For one thing, God is deeply concerned about the people that you and I are becoming. If we're using our bodies for the purpose of satisfying the sexual craving within by consuming others, whether through porn use or simple hookups, you and I need to know that we are actively feeding the flesh. This is what Paul talks about in Galatians chapter 5. And there in Galatians chapter 5, we find out that when we feed the flesh, we are actually strengthening the power of the flesh. 
If you want to starve and kill something, you don't feed it. If you are expecting it to die while at the same time feeding it, my friend, you are sadly mistaken. In fact, it will not die. It will grow in strength and it will gain power over you. There will come a point if you continue to feed your flesh by responding to those cravings at which you arrive at a point once you've made enough decisions and those decisions have resulted in habits and those habits have formed a character, at that point you'll find that you can no longer say no. And you will be enslaved. Feed the flesh long enough. And you will end up at the mercy of your cravings. Rather than experiencing self-control over them as a person walking by the Spirit. The Lord Jesus did not purchase you or me in order to see us become slaves again. He purchased us in order to free us from slavery to our selfish desires. The Apostle Paul exalts, encourages the church in Rome with these words. Romans chapter 6, verses 12 to 14. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin, your very, the various parts of your body to sin, as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from what? Death to life. And your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you. Since you are not under law, but under grace. So the question I ask is simply this. Who are you becoming? Who are you becoming? The everyday decisions you make to indulge or to say no to the cravings of the flesh will answer that question for you. Your choices and mind form habits which ultimately form our character. Why does God care so much about the sex lives of his people? Second, God is concerned about the story that you and I are telling with our bodies. We're to put God's character on display through the way that we use our bodies sexually. This is the ultimate reason for the seventh word, you shall not commit adultery. You see, when people go outside the bounds of the marriage relationship in order to satisfy their sexual cravings, they lie about who God is. They lie about 
the God who loves one spouse and gives himself faithfully, exclusively, and forever to one people. Sexual fidelity is is ultimately about representing the faithful God of the covenant. This means that by keeping the seventh word as a people, you and I tell the truth about who God is. More specifically, as Christians, you and I tell the truth about King Jesus. The true husband and bridegroom of the church who gives himself sacrificially to his one bride his church Jesus fulfills all of his vows he is forever faithful he stays true he pursues his bride and remains forever faithful to the promises that God once made to his treasured possession. Listen to these beautiful words from God via the prophet Hosea. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. And you shall know Yahweh. Over and over again. Throughout the Old Testament. We hear Yahweh say. You shall be my people. And I will be your God. Friends, this is the language of covenant love. This is the language of exclusive commitment, of mutual belonging. This is the language of marriage. Ultimately, it is Jesus who comes to fulfill the words the prophet speaks in Hosea 2. No adultery is permitted among the people of God because Jesus will never prove unfaithful. No adultery is permitted among the people of God because Jesus will never prove untrue. Even when you and I are unfaithful to him. And that's really good news, isn't it? For all of us, all of us, in one way or another, are spiritual adulterers. This week, as I was reflecting on this passage and figuring out how I wanted to kind of outline my way through this message, I was simply tempted to repeat last week's outline and simply change the wording. It's as easy to say to you all and myself this week, congratulations, welcome to the club, you're all spiritual adulterers. And I am too. We have gone our own way, 
We have carved our own path. We have chosen to determine for ourselves what is good and what is evil. We have chosen to obey our cravings rather than our king. And yet, and yet, he loves us still. If you belong to him, he already has a key to every room in your home and every room in your heart. And he knows exactly what's there. The good, the bad, the ugly, and the dark, oozy, grimy, bleak stuff. That you don't want anybody to know about. He knows about it. And he loves you. Anyway, he will never, ever, ever tap out. He will never, ever, ever issue you or me a certificate of divorce. It's really the third thing I want you to know. God's so concerned about the sex lives of his people because he loves us. And he wants the very best for us. The ten words are commandments, yes. But they are also big, bright, neon signs. Guiding the way away from the land of death and into the land of life. Because we are sinners, we hate being told what to do, and we think we know better. When God tells us to channel our sexuality into the narrow path of marriage, we recoil, we resist, and we go off in the other direction, thinking and believing that real freedom is found in charting our own course. But is that really where we want to go? If that's the course you're charting for yourself this morning, how's that working for you? I've said it before and I'll say it again. Go against the grain of reality long enough and you will get splinters, my friend. All the while, Jesus is pursuing us. Warning us and wooing us and inviting us onto a better path. Inviting us to embrace him and his wisdom. Why? Because he loves us. And because he loves us, he will not leave us alone. He demands access to our bedrooms because he cares deeply about us. And he isn't ashamed to enter and to embrace us no matter what he finds there. Have you suffered sexually at the hands of another? Jesus loves you. Have you sinned sexually to the point where you think there is no hope for you? Jesus loves 
you? Are your private thoughts an unending porn video playing on loop on a projector that you just don't think you'll ever be able to shut off? Jesus loves you. Have you cheated on your spouse? Did that decision wreck your marriage? Jesus loves you. Are you the victim of adultery? Did you find yourself on the receiving end of words from a spouse, a confession from a spouse, or simply finding out that you had been cheated on? Jesus loves you. As one author writes, every one of us can admit to thoughts Feelings, looks, words, and actions that violate and vandalize the glories of our God-given sexuality. But our sins do not defeat our Savior. They are the reason he came to us. And he isn't sorry he got involved. Heavenly Father, as my brothers and sisters reflect on this message this morning, I pray that you would meet each and every one of us right where we are. The scriptures tell us, Lord Jesus, that you are not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. I have to imagine that in a room like this this morning, there are many people who are probably struggling deeply with shame regarding sexual sin. Here's the invitation. You call us to bring out of the darkness and into the light the sins with which we struggle. And you will forgive us. You will cleanse us. You will embrace us. You will set us on our feet. You will look us square in the eyes and you will say, my child, I love you. Let's walk together into life and away from death. God, I pray that this is the day that someone in this room is set free from the power of lust, from the sinful cravings of their flesh. I pray that this is the day, perhaps that a marriage is restored or strengthened. I pray that this is the day that husbands and wives look at one another and renew their vows to be faithful in deep ways to one another. Ultimately, I pray as we stand to sing together that this is the day that we are drawn closer to Jesus, our faithful husband, who will never leave or forsake us. In whose name we pray. Amen. Look, I want to challenge you. If this message...